welcome to the Resonate Boise Sermons podcast. Today, you'll be hearing from our site pastor, Jonah Link, as he continues our sermon series going through the Sermon on the Mount. How are we doing today? Doing pretty good. That's awesome. Uh, It's really good to be back. The last three weeks, I have been not up here, and I'm super thankful that Stephen was able to bring the word three weeks ago and talk about anger and what that looks like in our lives. And hearing from you guys, he crushed it, and he needs to preach more, so that's a note to Stephen. Um, And then Mark came the previous two weeks and brought the word to us then, and we saw kind of a pattern that was taking place, and we're going to continue into that pattern today. But before I get into that, last weekend I got to go to Pocatello and preach there. And it was just a joy and honor to hear stories that have been happening in Pocatello, people coming to faith in Jesus and a community being built. And I hear those stories every week on our pastor's calls. But to be able to go there and see it for myself, it was really encouraging for my faith and in my position of pastor. It was really helpful for me to see that There, But one story in particular stood out to me a ton, even as I was preparing the sermon, that I wanted to share with you guys. I get done preaching, and I walk out into the lobby, and like normal, just begin to have conversations with some of the people that were in there. And this one gal comes up to me. Her name's Gabriella. She comes up to me and begins to tell me some really nice things about my sermon, but more importantly, what God's been teaching her as of late. And so we begin to converse, and I asked her, hey, when did you give your life to Jesus? And she said, oh, it was about 11 months ago when I gave my life to Jesus. I said, praise God. Like, what was that situation like? How did it come about? And she was like, well, I was a part of this satanic cult. And ultimately, Jesus like rescued me from this and used my partner at that time. He shared the gospel with me. And Jesus like rescued me from that. And in that moment, I'm just like, okay, you hear about this stuff on your podcast that you might listen to, books you might read, But I was interacting with someone that was literally a part of a satanic cult. And in the moment I said to her, I was like, Gabriella, I don't know what other people envision when they hear of someone that's been in a satanic cult and what they look like and kind of their demeanor. But you're not it. Like, you are not it. She was the sweetest lady. She's a little over 30 years old. Just so sweet. She was pregnant at the time. And she's about 30-something weeks pregnant. And just like the sweetest gal. So I was like, you are just not at all what I pictured coming out of a satanic cult. Explain to me, like, what happened? How did God save you from that space? And she goes on to tell me all of the things that she participated in. She tells me about, like, all of the orgies and crystals and all of the new age satanic cult stuff that you might think about. She explains all of that to me. And then she says, I've never told anyone that. And then in my mind, I'm like, well, you just told me, like, it was just factual. Why? And I asked her, is there any shame or embarrassment associated with all of those things that you just listed off to me about what you used to participate in? She said, not anymore. Like, Jesus freed me from that stuff. And it absolutely took me back, absolutely took me back and took my breath away to be able to say, okay, Jesus has actually freed me from this stuff, has completely forgiven me. Therefore, I don't have shame in what I've done in the past because of what Jesus did for me on the cross and he has healed me and freed me, is what Gabriella was saying. And she's a new creation now in Christ. And it was incredible and so helpful even for today. As we jump into the topic of divorce, it's hard, it is heavy. I was talking to Stephen before service and Ashley before. Like, I've been 
rewriting, reworking, trying to figure out what exactly God wants to say to us in this sermon. And I've been struggling with it up until this moment where I stepped on stage. It is heavy. It is hard. I'm sure most of you have had some sort of interaction with divorce, whether it's your parents, grandparents, a close friend of yours, yourself. Like maybe you've had a really, really close experience with divorce and odds are pretty good because 40 to 60% of uh, first marriages in America, according to the American Psychological Association, get a divorce, 40 to 60%, somewhere in that range. And it is heavy, it is hard, there is hurt associated with it, there is pain, there's embarrassment, shame, all of the things that you can probably think of, even things that I didn't just name, that you have experienced when it comes to this topic. And in our culture today, divorce is prominent. It is a normal thing that people tend to experience today. And so, I know Stephen just prayed for the topic, but I mean, it is heavy. And so I want to take another moment and just pray for our hearts, pray for myself, even as I try to communicate through this difficult topic. So would you bow your heads with me? Uh, Father, give, give us the eyes to see what you, and ears to hear what you are trying to communicate to us through your word. God, I pray that the words that come out of my mouth would uh, land on soft hearts. God, that your word, the scripture that we are going to work through today, some of it is heavy and difficult and hard, but God, it is according to your will, your design. So Lord, I pray where your scripture contradicts what we feel and what we think we would be willing to submit to your word. And God, as I communicate, would you give me a clarity by which I could speak to communicate gracefully and truthfully as we work through this difficult topic. So Lord, I pray at the end of today, there would be healing there would be freedom from sin. There would be a confession that might take place. And you'd receive all the glory from it. Amen. So if you have your copy of Scripture, you can go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 5. And we've been working through the Sermon on the Mount, just section by section. And by doing that, we're going to run into some harder topics. And, and praise God that he's given us this opportunity to talk about even this topic. And so over the last three weeks... We've had this similar pattern that Stephen and Mark have both hit on, where you see Jesus come with the Old Testament law that currently is being used by the scribes and Pharisees in a way that God never intended it to be used. And so Jesus is essentially course correcting, like, hey, this is what you're supposed to think about this law. And so we see this again when it comes to divorce. Verse 31 reads this, And it was also said, whoever divorces his wife let him give her a certificate of divorce. So Jesus is quoting from Matthew, or sorry, Deuteronomy chapter 24. And the reality is that the Jewish view on marriage at the time is pretty broken because of two schools of thought that currently are prominent. On one side, you have this guy, this rabbi. His name is Shammai. Probably saying it wrong, but Shammai. This guy's school of thought was Today, we would look at it and say it's more in line with how Jesus teaches about the Old Testament law. But at his time, in Jesus' time, people, the scribes and Pharisees looked at Shammai and they were like, you're so legalistic. That's not what God meant. That's not what um, God instructs through his law. He, because Shammai took it pretty literally, what God's law said. On the other side of the aisle, you have this rabbi named Halil. And Halil, his view was very, very different. 
he essentially wants to give men all sorts of permission to essentially do whatever they want and use God's law to justify it. So if you were to look back at Deuteronomy chapter 24, there's a word in the ESV, it's different than the King James Version, but you see a word indecency, you see a word uncleanliness in in description of the husband's wife. That's how you see it described. And what uh, Shammai says is, no, what God means when he talks about uncleanliness is he's talking about sexual immorality, which we'll get to. But Halil, his perspective of this word uncleanliness was that the, whatever the woman or the wife did within the confines of marriage that the husband didn't like, it was grounds for divorce. And so you can Google this, search this as much as you want. Look back at Jewish texts. But Halil would say that you could go so far as if your wife cooked a bad meal for you, it was grounds for divorce. Like it was that broad to him. And you can imagine that it was very popular in a culture that really valued men and tended to value women, which not at all was the view of God and still is not. And so for me, I think about last night. I cooked some chicken on the trigger and I, I just love seasoning. That's just what I do. So I put a bunch of seasoning on it and we sit down, we start eating dinner and I look over at Tori and she's like eating really slow, like slower than normal. And I'm like, I bet I put too much seasoning on this. And so I asked her, I was like, hey, did I put too much seasoning on this? And she was like, yeah, you definitely put too much seasoning on this. And if Tori ascribed to Halil's perspective of Deuteronomy 24, I could be kicked out of the house. Like that is how silly the view of Halil was at the time, but it favored the men in that culture. And so it was the most popular perspective. And Jesus comes in and he is absolutely refuting this idea And so if you want to throw up the picture, Ashley, this is a list of all of the major reasons for divorce according to the National Library of Medicine. And this is today. And as you're going to see, we're not far off. Look at all of these reasons why people get a divorce today in America. You see lack of commitment at number one, infidelity or sexual immorality at number two, too much conflict, arguing, too young, financial problems, substance abuse, domestic violence, health problems, lack of support for family, religious differences. To me, that seems like something you should figure out on the front end. Uh, But a little or no premarital education. Like those are some of the reasons today why Americans get a divorce. And we kind of laugh at Halil's perspective, but in the same way, our culture is essentially right in the same line. Like, It might be from both sides, both male and female sides, or husband and wife are getting divorced for some of these reasons. But we laugh at it a little, but yet our culture finds itself in a very similar setting. And so Jesus, if you were to fast forward to Matthew chapter 19, you don't have to turn there if you don't want to, but in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus responds to the Pharisees and tells them exactly why this law even exists in the book of Deuteronomy. And this is what Jesus says to them. It says, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Because of your hardness of heart. And then he goes on to say this, but from the beginning, it was not so. That's chapter 19, verse eight. From the beginning, it was not so. It was never God's design within marriage for divorce to be an option. That's not what God desires whatsoever. That was not his original intent in marriage. 
we're going to get to a complete picture of God's intent in marriage. But there is no part of God's intent that was ending it before death or Jesus returns. There is no part of God's design for marriage that he desired it to end in divorce. There is nothing according to his design. And so God despises the idea of divorce because it is completely contrary to his design and intent, but he gives the opportunity and ability because of the hardness of hearts of us, the hardness of our hearts, inability to confess, inability to be reconciled like Jesus, or we are reconciled to God through Jesus. And we get to verse 32 in chapter 5, the second part of this divorce section. Is Jesus says, but I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Throughout the entirety of the New Testament, you see sexual immorality appear a ton. Many of you probably know that it comes from the Greek word porneia, which is where we get pornography and illicit sexual material. Similar word there. But when it comes to pornea, many scholars believe that it is uh, more of a broad word and not a narrow word. So Shammai would have thought, the rabbi that we've talked about, he would have thought that it only meant sexual immorality by having sex, sexual intercourse with someone else. But today's scholars would say that, no, it's actually a little, little bit more broad than that. It covers more ground than that. Sexual immorality... I mean, if you are consistently addicted to pornography within your marriage, that, that's something to be concerned about. And you could look at many different areas within this idea of pornea, sexual immorality, and have a pretty valid excuse under what Jesus is teaching right here. But what Jesus isn't saying is that you have to get a divorce when there is sexual immorality. This isn't a command Jesus doesn't want divorce. God doesn't want divorce. That's never his intent, but he knows our sinful hearts, our brokenness, our hardness of hearts. It's hard for us to forgive. It's hard for us to reconcile the hurt that's been done to us at times. So there's a local uh, pastor. Um, this is many, many years ago. There's a local pastor here in Boise that got caught up in having an affair outside of his marriage. And so he got found out and it was a really messy, ugly process. Initially, he was unrepentant, um, but eventually he became repentant, and his heart softened to the sin, the grievous sin that he had committed. The reality for this pastor was that his wife had every right to divorce him. Biblically, she had every right to divorce him, but she never did. They separated for a time while she figured out how to sort through this, but to this day, they are still married because she is, she's still working through forgiveness as far as I know. But the reality is she didn't view Matthew 5 as a command from Jesus, and I don't think we should either because it's not a part of God's original design for marriage. It's not a part of the picture that we should think about. The other thing that I want to address, you see on the grounds of sexual immorality, and that's the only thing that Jesus puts right there. What does that mean about abuse? Some of the other reasons that we looked at up there that you might read and say, that seems pretty valid. Like, does God really want me in an ab a physically abusive, a emotionally abusive relationship? Is that a part of God's design? Does that, 
does that not equate to the right in God's eyes to divorce my spouse? Does God want me to be stuck in that? And for that, I want to take you to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where Paul talks about the principles for marriage. And specifically, verse 15 says this, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So essentially what Paul is communicating right here is if your spouse deserts you, you are freed up in the eyes of God. You are free to divorce in the eyes of God. It says God has called you to peace. God has called you to peace. And so when we think about the infallibility or the inerrancy or the lack of errors within this book, if you believe the Bible is authoritative, it is a perfect God-made picture of our brokenness and God's restoration of the human race to himself, whom he created and loves, if you believe this Bible is without error, then when you look at Matthew chapter 5, and you look at verse 32, when Jesus says, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, we can't say that that is an exhaustive list of what it takes in order to get a divorce. We can't look at it as an exhaustive list based on 1 Corinthians 7 and what Paul talks about with divorce. And so I don't want us to get hung up on all of the scenarios that might take place in your minds. I'm sure they're running through your mind right now. Like, what about this? What about that? Is this grounds for divorce? I'm sure those things are running through your head. And they were for mine as well as I was preparing this sermon. But the reality for us is I want us to understand God's perfect design for marriage and fully understand that we are sinful and broken humans. But lean into this idea of God's perfect design for marriage. And for that, I want to take you into Ephesians chapter 5. So if you have your copy of scripture, you can turn there if you would like. And we'll start in verse 22. It says, Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. We often get caught up on this word submit a lot, and it might be rubbing you the wrong way even as I read that. But if you look right before that in verse 21, it says, Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ is the call for all Christians. That's a general Christian calling, is submission to other believers out of our reverence for Christ. And so this picture that we see of wives submitting to their husbands, Paul relates it to a picture of how the church is submitting to the authority of Jesus. And so just as we are sitting here, reading through God's word, submitting to what God says in his word, that is the picture that we see within marriage between wives and husbands. But then the calling, I think, for the husbands is severe and hefty as well. Verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That's what Jesus does to the church. And husbands, our responsibility is to resemble what Christ did for the church, and Christ ultimately died for us. 
Your call as a husband is to lay your life down, your own interests, your own desires down for the good of your wife, just as Christ does for the church, so the church might be presented blameless and holy when the time has come. Verse 28. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are all members of his body. What a beautiful picture of marriage that is. That we would, as husbands, love and cherish and adore the gift of our wife that God has given us, and vice versa. That we can cherish and adore one another for who God has made us to be. That is what Paul writes in Ephesians. And then he quotes Genesis 2, which is pivotal to our understanding of how God views marriage. It says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. The two shall become one flesh. This idea of one flesh, I was trying to think of how to illustrate the oneness that God is trying to articulate through Genesis 2, and some of the pictures that came into mind is like baking a cake and taking dry and wet ingredients, and when the wet and dry ingredients go into the bowl, like, you can't, you can't reverse it. You can't reverse it at all. Or like I had to mix, some, uh, mix in some two-cycle oil into my unleaded gasoline to run my weed eater the other day, and when I put those two ingredients together, I can't separate them. They are one. Like, there is no separating those things, and that's what they sound simple and silly, but that's what I imagine when I think about one flesh according to God's design for marriage. In God's eyes, marriage should never separate. Outside of death is one, and outside of Jesus returning is the other. There should be no separation. But Jesus, knowing that our sinful nature, God knowing that our sinful nature exists and we are far from perfect, he gives us the ability based on uh, Matthew chapter 19, where we read, because of your hardness of hearts, Moses allowed this to happen, and it exists for us today as Jesus repeats that. So the reality for us today is we fall short of God's perfect design. We fall short of God's perfect design for marriage, and it causes all of us pain, right? It cause, causes suffering, it causes hurt, causes embarrassment, shame, all the things that we talked about at the beginning. It doesn't matter whether you're single or married in this space. Like It has affected probably all of us to some extent or will in the future. So I want to share with you a story from um, my life that it's, it's pretty hard. Um, but before I knew Jesus, I slept around. Um, I wasn't a virgin and so coming into marriage and before um, I was to propose to Tori, I felt like biblically I owed her like the most sincere apology because I've sinned against her. I've done the exact opposite of God's design. I take her to the backyard of the house she's living in. We sit in a hammock, order some pizza to try to ease the pain. Um, and through tears, I'm telling her like, Tori, I've sinned against you. I'm sorry and ask and just like plead for her forgiveness. And um, she looks me dead in the eyes. I'm not much of a crier, but this story every time, man, I swear. She, she looks me dead in the eyes and she says, without like emotion, just stating facts. 
she says, you know Jesus died for that, right? You know Jesus died for that, right? And I freaking lost it, man. Like, Jesus died for all of our shortcomings in our marriages, in our singleness, all of our sin that separates us from God. That's the stuff that Jesus died on that cross for. And so even when we fall short, even when there is sexual immorality, uh, abuse, all of these things that are present that are awful and sinful and broken, Jesus meets us with forgiveness so long as there's repentance. And so when I came to Tori and I had that conversation with her and she said those words, I'm just reminded of the last verse in Ephesians 4 when Paul writes about, man, we should be able to forgive as Christ has forgiven you. Forgive as you've been forgiven. And that's what I was met with. And that has radically shaped my view of how God has forgiven us. We have sinned against a perfect God. We are so undeserving of the perfect even design of marriage that God has intended for us. And he gives us grace. And all of us married folk in the room, like there are some incredible aspects to your marriage that even when times are really hard, you can look at and be like, praise God that you've given me a wife that loves me like this or respects me like this and vice versa. We've been given so much grace. And if you don't know Jesus in the room, If you don't know Jesus, be like Gabriella, be like myself, and be completely freed from your sin. Be freed from your shame by saying, God, Jesus is who he says he is. Jesus came, he died on the cross, he rose from the grave, showing that he is more powerful than sin and death itself. And if I confess that I'm sinful, that I don't have it all figured out, I fall short of God's design, his perfect design for life in general, that I am sinful and broken, God forgives. He's merciful and just to forgive you and cleanse you of all unrighteousness. And then you can be like Gabriella and go back and talk about your sin and who you once were, full well knowing you are a new creation in Christ. New creation in Christ. And so I have three specific ways that I want to talk through that I think we can respond with because we know from God's word that divorce is not in the picture of God's design of marriage. He doesn't desire that whatsoever. He gave it to it because of our hardness of hearts. And God's design for marriage is good and perfect, and we should submit to that and fall in line with what God teaches in his word about marriage. And where you don't line up, is what I want to tell you, you need to confess. You can confess your sin to your spouse, where you have fallen short of God's design for marriage, where there is a unintentional or intentional emotional abuse, physical abuse, uh, sexual sin, wherever that might be, confess to your spouse. Maybe that doesn't look like in this space today, it looks like you go home and you confess to them face to face, but confess to them. And where there is understanding of the forgiveness that Jesus has offered us, more often than not, you're going to be met with forgiveness. But you think about James 5 and how James writes, confess to one another and pray for one another that you might be healed. That's where healing starts. It starts with confession, which is so hard for us to comprehend. So hard for us to take that step because that's where all the shame is sitting, the embarrassment is sitting. It's sitting in the action that is not yet confessed of. But confess your sin to your spouse. Confess and you will be forgiven. 
So in response today, I have three things I want to talk us through. And these apply to single people, married people, all, all the like. But number one, I think we have to submit to God's view of marriage. If we believe that God's intent, his design is perfect, we have to look at something like Ephesians 5 and submit to it. I have to submit to God's view of marriage, and it might look different in different seasons, but ultimately, God's design is perfect for us. And so if we believe that God's design is perfect, we have to believe that his design of marriage is perfect as well. That one man would marry one woman, and they would become one flesh. And their marriage would put on full display Christ's relationship to his church. That is God's design for marriage. So for us in the room that might have a hard time submitting to God's design for marriage, like come talk to me. I'd love to help you sort through. I'd love to help you get to a place where you can fully submit to God's design for marriage. Number two, invest in your marriage. Invest in it. Physically, financially, emotionally, invest in your marriage. There are multiple of you in the audience today that go to marriage counseling, not because you have a bunch of issues, but because you want to invest in your marriage and make your marriage the healthiest, most godly marriage that you can. And it's a really, really good thing. And I know that sometimes we can get this thought that counseling is only for people that have issues, but it is not. Like humble ourselves, go to a a licensed professional that can help you sort through some of these things. So I'm young, I'm still learning, I don't have all the wisdom, I can't necessarily help you through everything, but there are licensed professionals that totally can. So one way that you can invest in your marriage is by going to marriage counseling. Another way that I thought of is vacation together. Get away from the worries of the world and care for your spouse. Just vacation. Spend time together. Get away from the mundane, maybe stressful day-to-day and spend time together via vacation. The third thing I thought about is date nights. How often are you and your spouse just going on dates together? How often are you guys uh, investing in your marriage by spending very quality, unhindered time together? Kids, I know that makes it hard, but that's in my next point. Uh, the, the last two, praying together and reading the word together. I know Tori and I have had great seasons of this and not so great seasons of this. But when it's great, oh, it's so life-giving and you feel even more connected as you connect spiritually with one another. That's part of the oneness that God designed us to have with our spouse. Okay, the third big idea is invest in one another's marriages. And this is primarily where I see you single people in the room coming into play and really contributing to the health of the marriages within our church. Ask one another how your marriage is doing. We talk about this in huddle basically all the time. We're always asking each other, how's your marriage? How are you doing with blank? How are you doing with your, your wife? How are things going spiritually, emotionally, physically? All of those things are incredibly important to a healthy marriage. And so whether you are single or married, you can ask each other questions about the health of your marriage and, and help lead them and challenge them and guide them into health. Another thing, this is for the single people primarily, but it also applies to uh, married individuals. Watch married people's kids. Like being a dad for the first time, being parents for the first time, 
Sometimes it's really hard to like let your kid be in someone else's care. Like Tori and I have been sorting through that recently and we need to be able to say, let people bless us with time away from Levi, though he's cute and I love him to death. Get away so that we can care and invest in our marriage together. And so that's one way you single people and married people can invest in the married couples in our church with, that have kids. Last one that I thought of was like, just do group vacations even, and, or go out to dinner together, have people into your home, and have conversations specifically about marriage. Because if this idea of marriage and God's perfect design is supposed to resemble Jesus' relationship to the church, it's so important, guys. It is so important to be able to submit to God's view of marriage and operate in health so that the world can see this is how Jesus reacts and um, interacts with his church, which is so good and so perfect. The last way that I want us to respond today is communion. So as I wrap up, those are the three ways that I want you to respond initially um, and think through as you go about your week. But this one in communion, man, this is for the believers in the room that want to uh, remember what Jesus did for them on the cross. I mean, we talked a little bit about how we fall short of God's design just in marriage. But the reality is we fall short everywhere, all the time. And what we're doing in communion is remembering what Jesus did on the cross, where he, he, his blood was shed on our behalf, so we drink the juice to remember that and to rejoice in that reality that his blood covered our sins. And secondarily, his body that was broken for us is represented by the bread. And when we take that bread, we are remembering that Jesus willingly gave his life up so that we might regain ours for eternity. So if you're a follower of Jesus in the room, we have a station at the back. And over the next couple of songs, and as Alex plays the guitar, feel free to go back there with your spouse. Maybe this is a great time for you to confess to one another and then maybe have a little bit longer dialogue about it when you get home. But however you need to respond in the next couple of minutes, Start with communion and pray with one another. If you need prayer for your marriage and want to work through some stuff, I would love to talk with you and pray with you. I don't have all the wisdom in the world, but when we seek the Lord, he gives us to us. That's a promise in scripture. So I'm going to pray for us, and then you can respond by taking communion and talking to your spouse, talking to others, and praying with others around you. Father, thank you for who you are. God, thank you for your perfect design of marriage. God, forgive us for the areas where we fall short. God, it seems like it is frequent and often, but God, you are just as frequently and often uh, gracious with us. So God, thank you for the grace that you give us and the gift of Jesus on the cross and him willingly laying down his life so we can have freedom, that we can be made a new creation. I pray that we'd be able to uh, live in health within our marriages, that the single individuals in the room would be preparing themselves for healthy marriages if that's what you have for them, Lord. So God, I pray that you would uh, speak to us in this space. You would let people experience the forgiveness that you offer where there's confession. And ultimately, God, you'd be glorified in this space. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.